All right, good evening, everyone. Arab Tov, welcome to Echoes of Eden. As we are in the third week of the annual Torah cycle, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about some of what that title is, where it comes from in the Bible before we uh, dive in with the summary and so forth. Um, but let's get started with the blessing before the study of Torah. Baruch atah Adonai eleheinu melech ha'olam asher kidishanu b'mitzvotav v'sivanu le'esok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments, who has commanded us to be immersed into the words and the matters of the Torah. Amen. So this third section of the Torah is known as Lech Lecha. Lech Lecha. Uh, covers Genesis chapter 12 uh, all the way to the end of chapter 17. So Genesis 12 through 17 is that third portion. And even if you don't read Hebrew, if you look at those two Hebrew words uh, up on the screen or on your sheet, um, they look the same, do they not? And yet, uh, and that they should because they are the same, and yet it's pronounced differently. So what's going on? And that's very important because while they look the same and are even spelled the same, they are not the same word, okay? And that phenomenon does exist even in the English language, and it exists in a lot of languages as well. Um, I forget the fancy term for that, but there is a fancy term for it. Uh, so they are the same word in one regard, but they are not the same word, okay? So lake comes from a verb, halak, which means quite literally in its most literal form, to walk, uh, which also can mean to go because especially in an ancient language like Hebrew, to go somewhere meant to walk somewhere, right? So, but it comes from a verb, halach, and when it is in its imperative form, like you better get up and go, you better get up and start moving and walking, um, it drops its ha and it becomes lake, okay? The second word is really uh, a preposition and a pronoun. Uh, it is the preposition, lamed, which means to. And then the last is the letter kaf, which is the pronominal suffix, the pronoun are uh, your, uh, are you. All right. So lake, lakha, um, you would be tempted if maybe you were a uh, a first-year Hebrew student to think, oh, it's the same word repeated twice. I've heard pastors or preachers say Hebrew repeats words when it wants to emphasize something. So it's really saying go, and they would be completely wrong. So if you ever hear that, they're wrong, all right? They are two different words, all right? Lake laka. That's going to be significant. We're going to spend, I don't know, anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour just talking about that, okay? So it's a big deal. Uh, but that's why, even though they look the same, they're pronounced differently. Lake Lecha. Okay? Uh, so Genesis chapter 12 through 17. So what's happening uh, in this portion, Lech Lecha? It is where we get introduced in the Bible to one of its greatest heroes, uh, the patriarch, or we know him, we'll first meet him as Abram or Avram in Hebrew, where we'll first meet him. He hasn't had his name changed just yet, but we get introduced to him and to his wife, Sarai. And we're in that portion of the book of Bereshit, the book of Genesis, where we're, we're seeing God at work making for himself a people. He's making for himself a people. And Abraham, uh, or Abram, uh, is one of those individuals from which God will make himself uh, a people. So the portion begins by God speaking, if you will, which is God calling to Abraham or God calling to Abram, that uh, internal sense that we would often maybe say when I, we could say, I heard God speak to me or God spoke to me or it's as if God communicated to me. God communicates to Abram that he is in the opening words of Genesis 12, verse 1, to go from his land, to go from his birthplace, to go from his father's house to the land that God will show him. 
And there God says that Abram will be made into a great nation. And so Abram and his wife at that time, her name is Sarai, uh, accompanied by his nephew Lot, journey to the land of Canaan. Uh, the land of Canaan is what we would know in our modern maps as Israel. Uh, the promised land is Canaan, is Israel. And there, when Abraham arrives to the land of Canaan, he builds an altar. A famine forces the first person in the Bible to be called a Hebrew. All right? So that happens in here. Uh, this is the first time anyone is ever called a Hebrew in the Bible. Uh, in your Hebraic toolbox, the law of first is very important. Uh, why is Abraham called a Hebrew? There are no Hebrew people yet. Abraham is not a Hebrew. Abraham is not Jewish. All right, he becomes the father of the Jewish people. He becomes the father of the Hebrews, but there are none to give birth to him. He's the OG. He is the original Hebrew. So what does Hebrew mean for Abraham? Well, the root of the word Hebrew uh, means to cross over. And that is not only because Abraham did that in a very literal sense, meaning he left the land of his father, he left his homeland, he left the land that he knew, and he crossed over rivers and borders into the land of Canaan. But on a much deeper level, he crossed over spiritually speaking. Uh, he crossed over from a land of idolatry, uh, a father who was an uh, idolater, who was an idol maker. He crossed over from that. And so in the scriptures, when we read about journeys and travels and going up and going down, they're not only describing literal journeys. Yes, they are doing that, but they are also describing spiritual journeys as well. And so Abraham in this portion is called a Hebrew first one on planet earth to ever be called that um, and he's called that when he departs for egypt which then begins a pattern you will see in the bible abraham goes down he descends down into egypt uh, he will again ascend up and out of egypt back to the promised land jacob and his family will descend down into egypt and they will come up and come back to the promised land this pattern repeats itself until there's even uh, a family named Mary and Joseph and Jesus, and they descend into Egypt, and then they come back to the promised land. All right, as we continue uh, in our Torah classes, I will begin to reveal more and more the significance of this descending for the sake of ascending, which is one of the tools in your toolbox and we'll get to it a little bit tonight when we talk about running and returning, ebbing and flowing. Very much a pattern throughout all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, and you see it very early on in the Torah right here. So they descend into Egypt. They're beautiful Sarai. Whenever the Torah talks about someone being beautiful, it isn't just speaking of their physical appearance. It's speaking of their soul. Um, beautiful Sarai is taken to Pharaoh's palace. Uh, Abram escapes death because they present themselves as brother and sister. A plague prevents the Egyptian king from touching her, and he convinces, uh, he's convinced to return Sarai back to Abram. And then he compensates the brother now revealed as husband with gold and silver and sends them on their way which is already foreshadowing something that's going to happen in the book of Exodus. When the people come out in Exodus, what do the Egyptians do when they finally leave for the one last time? They load them up, right, with gold and silver. All right, so it's the, you, you're beginning to see these what are called fractals, repeating patterns in Scripture. We want to take note of them now, and each time they kind of repeat themselves and we take note of it, we'll go a little bit deeper into it. For now, just notice the pattern and that it's going to be repeating itself. So now that they're back in the land of Canaan, Lot separates from Abram and he settles down in the city of Sodom, which is in the southern part of modern Israel, the southern part of the land of Canaan, around the Dead Sea area. But at the time, 
that area was not like it is today. Like if you go around the Dead Sea today, uh, it's not called the Dead Sea for nothing, right? It's, it's desert, uh, and there's nothing really much living around there. Uh, but at the time of Lot being down there, it was actually very fertile. It was very uh, sought after. It was uh, very much a land people wanted to settle in and live in. And so he goes down there, and he falls captive uh, to the mighty armies of the king of Elam and three allies as they conquered the five major cities of the Sodom Valley. Uh, just an interesting side note, the great sin, um, the great evil of Sodom is not sexuality, even though we have uh, legal terms like sodomy based on Sodom, right? Even though we very much associate the sexuality and the misdeeds of the sexual sins of Sodom, that is not their great sin. Uh, that's their great sin. Every city has that great sin. Jesus, believe it or not, even tells us what their great sin is or was. And does anyone know what their great sin was? that Jesus in the Gospels tells you. They did not receive strangers. They were not hospitable. They did not love their neighbor. They only looked out for themselves. They very much stole from one another, were greedy, covetousness to an insane, insane level. Uh, but they showed no hospitality, which should give you some pause for thought, right? Because we might often be tempted to pat ourselves on the back because we aren't some kind of sexual perverts. But do, do we think that in the eyes of God, Allah Sodom, Allah the eyes of Jesus, that being inhospitable to people ranks higher on the ticking God off level? Right? But it does. It does because it's a failure to love your neighbor as yourself. What are the two great commandments in Scripture? Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the only two places in Scripture where you have the Hebrew word, ve'ahavta, which is why Jesus links them. Two words occur, never occur anywhere else in any place in the Bible or any known kind of religious literature of the period. Therefore, that means those two passages are linked together. Love your Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Sodom failed to do that. And so Abram then sets out with a small band. Uh, that's how wealthy Abram is, uh, that he very much has his own kind of nomadic uh, business. And as he nom you know, does what nomads do, like Bedouin, uh, and he has an army right, to protect himself and to protect his business. They go down and they retrieve um, a lot along the way. Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek, or Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem. Now, where is Salem? It's not in Massachusetts, right? Um, but I will give you a hint. Jeru, Salem, right? It's Jerusalem, before it's Jerusalem. How did, how did Salem become Jerusalem? Because when Abraham eventually goes to the point on that one of those mountains in Moriah, and he is ready to offer Isaac, and, and then it says, um, you know, that the, the Lord uh, sees, uh, Yirah in Hebrew, or Jaira for those contemporary Christian singers who don't know a bit of Hebrew. Uh, it's not Jaira. That song drives me crazy for that reason. Uh, it's Yirah. Uh, I guess that doesn't sound as good, but it's Yirah. Yirah becomes the first part of Salem because that marks the spot. So where Abram and Melchizedek are most well-known, it combines um, that God sees, God provides, and Salem. And that becomes Yerushalayim, right, Jerusalem. Uh, still childless, 10 years into their arrival in Canaan, Sarai tells Abram to marry her maidservant, Hagar. Hagar becomes pregnant, has a child, Ishmael, becomes insolent toward Sarai, Sarai treats her harshly and has Abram send her away. But God tells her that uh, Hagar, that her son, will also father a populous nation. Uh, and Israel, Ishmael is born when Abram is 86 years old. 
13 years later, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. He adds a letter, hey. A Hebrew, he just adds one letter. It's a very significant letter. And he adds the same letter to Sarai's name, and she becomes Sarah. Abraham means father of multitudes. Sarah means princess. And he promises, God promises them that a son will be born to them. And from that son, whom they will be calling Isaac, Yitzhak, uh, meaning laughter, will stem the great nation with which God will establish his bond. Yitzhak, Isaac, isn't named that just because Sarah laughs. That's part of it. Uh, but also uh, that word Yitzhak in Hebrew also means to mock, kind of like a mocking laughter, which is what Ishmael does. It's also one of those words, uh, again, I don't, I was a bad English student, when a word sounds like what it is, what is that? Onomatopoeia, all right? Yeah, onomatopoeia, all right? I hope that isn't what it sounds like, but uh, all right. But it, it's when a word sounds like what it is. That's also itzik, because in Hebrew, it's it, 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 right? It kind of sounds like someone laughing. Right? At least it does to Hebrew ears. It's when I learned German and I learned that the rooster goes kariki dicky d, I was like, no, it, it doesn't. But to Germans that play their little kids' game, it goes kariki dicky d. Uh, so laughter, fake laughter in Hebrew is yik, 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 right? And that's Yitzik's name, all right? So a little bit more behind his name, including that he would be mocked, uh, which you think about him foreshadowing our Messiah, that plays into that for sure. Abraham then is commanded to circumcise himself at 99 years old with instruments made thousands of years ago, right? I don't know if they had quite the sharpening tools, but nonetheless, uh, that he is going to do that and his descendants as a sign of the covenant between God and his, himself and his descendants. Abraham complies, uh, circumcises himself and his household. So that's kind of a summary of what goes on in this portion. Uh, we always want to look at some of the, the spiritual technology that's behind it. This is where when we read the portion this week, I want you to read it through the week, maybe break it apart. You read a little bit every day for the next five or six days. You want to do more than just read history stories. They're important to know. Yeah, they help you understand context. Yeah, they help you understand Jesus better. But you want to read it for more than that. And it has more than that. And it's supposed to be more than that. The stories are actually the, the, the less important details here. Uh, you want to know how does this help me in my life? How does this help me connect to my creator? How does this help me love my neighbor as myself? How does this love, help me love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength? How will this help me this week as I navigate my relationships or my work or my, or my health or whatever may be coming my way? Uh, and so then when we kind of know some of the things coming on in Lech Lecha, then we can pray about that before we read it. And then we expect reading those words and reading those stories, then will somehow in some way speak to our life or give us insight that God through his Holy Spirit will use these words to address us as we are living in the times, living in the times of this portion in this week. Again, as I've said each of the previous two weeks, if, if Jesus were on earth hanging out with us, he would be reading Lake Lecha this week. This is what he would be studying with his disciples because this is the time of year you read Genesis 12 through 17. And so how much more so as his disciples should we be reading that as well, expecting it also to matter to our life. Lake Laka, as I said in Hebrew, means go, go to yourself. Wow, right? Go, go to yourself. Find an English translation that gets honest with those words for you, right? It'll be very hard to do, right? But it means go, go to yourself. The basic teaching behind the story, therefore, is all about transcendence, where the words of this portion, as we prayerfully read it this week, help us to go out, out of, out of, our land, out of that land of idolatry, out of that land that we know so well, out of that land of creature comforts that we have created, to go out of that and in the process go to ourselves, find ourselves in it. 
to go and escape the bonds of our ego, to break free of self-interest, and in the process emancipate ourselves from those illusionary comfort zones that we have created. True spiritual light is only found outside of the box that we have grown used to living in physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I am going to repeat that because that is a major spiritual point in this week's portion that undergirds all of the stories. True spiritual light, true connection to the creator of heaven and earth is found only outside of the box that we have grown accustomed to living in physically, emotionally, and spiritually. True spiritual growth only comes where there is discomfort. It's a fundamental truth from Genesis to Revelation. If you are very, very comfortable, you are not growing spiritually. And if you are not growing spiritually, you are shrinking spiritually. We have to always be willing to go outside of our box, whether that's by coming to a Torah class and hearing things we've never heard before, being challenged by things we've never even thought of before, whether that's by being us going outside our comfort box and who we will extend love to, our care to, or who we will give hospitality to, whatever that comfort box is that we have created for ourselves. And there are dozens, if not hundreds of them. When we step out of that, right? That maybe it's, I don't like to be um, around people or I don't like to volunteer. What, we have those comfort boxes. This week, it's all about identifying them. So as you read Lake Laka, pray about it, journal about it, talk with someone about it. Like, what are my comfort boxes that I've created for myself that I fight tooth and nail to keep? And maybe which ones do I need to try stepping out of this week? The sacred words of this week's portion help us remove the blockages in our consciousness so that we can travel also with Abram to the land that God will show us. Because Israel is not just a physical location on a map, though obviously it is, but it's also a state of consciousness. It's a state of spiritual development. That's why Jacob moves from Jacob to Israel to Yeshurun. Right? Jacob has three names, and they're used interchangeably of Jacob. Even in the Psalms, it'll say, oh, you Jacob, then later it'll say, oh, Israel, right? And it's referring to Jacob. It's referring to where he's at, spiritually speaking, in his connection and relationship to God. It's a state of being. Okay, so those are some of the things that we have coming our way in this week's portion, as well as what we will continue to talk about this evening. So with all of that prefatory works, I think we're ready to look at the very first verse, all right? And I want us to read it together, but I do have the Hebrew in there because I want you to know every week the portion is named after, if not the very first word, the very kind of first major word. So, Lech uh, Lecha is not the first word of the portion, but um, the Lord is, and, and, and said is, and those aren't that unique of words and so forth. So it's kind of like the first kind of significant word. So I want you to see where it comes from in the portion and why it's named that. And that kind of also gives the whole portion its identity. All right, it's its name, right? Name in Hebrew is your identity, it's your essence, it's, it's your core. So, so that's why it's that way. We're going to pronounce it Lech Lecha. Uh, so let's read that together, the opening verse. Now the Lord said to Abram, Lech Lecha, from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now go ahead if you're a note taker and and note Genesis 12, verse 1 is where Lech Lecha is first found. Because only a few other times in the Bible do you hit the phrase Lech Lecha. One of them is going to be in a few portions from now with Isaac. And that's going to be significant in that story because it's going to take us back to here. So just kind of make a mental note of that, make a, a scribal note of that, whatever. We're not done with... Lake Lecha, even after this portion, 
uh, but now you'll be prepared for when that pops up later, right? Then it's hyperlinked, and you actually will have the hyperlink to go back this class and pull it all into the story of Isaac, okay? So the first time God speaks to Abram in the opening verse of the portion, Lake Lakah, he directs him to leave everything behind and to go seemingly unquestioningly where God will lead him. It says, you know, Lake Lakah, Lake Lakah from your land, from your country, uh, from the place of your birth or from your kindred. These are different ways you can translate it, different ways your Bible may have it. They're all fine. Um, from your father's house uh, to the land that I will show you. All right. And so there's a whole, we're going to see, there's a whole lot of detail about before you leave and kind of nothing afterwards, right? God saying, pack up your U-Haul, but I'm not even going to tell you which way to turn out of the driveway when you back up, right? You, do we take a right or a left here, right? Are we, going, are we going east or west? Are we going north or south, right? None of that's given, just go. Um, some details there about what you're to go from, which are important for us, we'll look at in a minute. But then just, you'll, you'll get there, which is an important point for us. A close examination of the words Lake Laka, as we've already done, reveal the double meaning. On one hand, God is telling Abram to go on a physical journey. Go, halak, walk, move, get going, is in the imperative, that first lake. But on the other hand, the other lake, or Laka, God is instructing Abram to go on an inner journey. With the phrase, Lake Laka literally means go to or within yourself. That's what it literally means. Again, though they look like the same word, they are not the same word. Go within yourself. Okay, so a double meaning. God in the first direct communication with Abram seems to be implying that leaving one's land and one's father's house is more than simply a change of scenery. This move implies breaking out of a lifetime of habits and norms in order to overcome any physical or spiritual limitations that Abraham may not have even been aware that he had. So sometimes, if we're going to grow spiritually, if we're going to grow in our trust of God and our what's called the emuna and our bitikon, our, our trust and, and faith in God, then we may have to remove ourselves from where we're currently at. And again, that's something to think about in your own life this week, right? What is going on in your life that may be restricting your growth? What's going on in your life that may be restricting you from uh, maturing or getting to a place where God would have you. Uh, and sometimes that may mean removing yourself from something that you have known your whole life or relationships that you've had for a very long time, but yet the relationship may be detrimental to you. It may not be the best thing for you. It may not be the best influence on you, and you may not even be aware of it, right? And so Abram is learning from God, like, if you're going to go to this land, this, this state of mind, this place that I'm going to show you, you're going to have to break free from some of these other things. And so here again, we're back to archetypes. This is an archetypal journey that will prove to be both a quantitative journey for Abram to the promised land of Canaan. He's physically going to do it. But as he's doing it, it's a spiritual journey from within. The archetypal journey is also found in the life of our Messiah. Messiah left his homeland, left everything that he knew, and he went down into Egypt. And who then, uh, also when he came back, he had to leave the confines of his own hometown, so to speak, of Nazareth. And then set up his home base, not in Nazareth, where he was from, where it was where his kindred and his father's house was, but he had to do it in Capernaum. So even for Messiah, this is Messiah's call uh, as well. And um, for us who see the Torah not only as some kind of history book, though it contains history, but more importantly, it's spiritual technology. It's a book that tells our own personal story embedded within 
the archetypes of the characters and the events. Then Lake Lakath, to go deep within, to go, go within, was not only given to Abram, but all of God's children, who are to constantly connect to God in the innermost recesses of our souls and simultaneously define the divine in the midst of our material world. So later, when <clears throat> Abraham comes to Israel and he began to traverse the land, he finally made it to this land that I will show you, it says these words in Genesis 12, verse 9. And notice I have some things kind of italicized and I have something underlined because we're you could just read that verse and just think it's telling you history. But it's not. It is, but it's not. The more important thing is the spiritual technology it's given to you to live life today, to live your life successfully as one who travels as a pilgrim in this world headed to your heavenly home, your heavenly land, your promised land, the land that God will show you. This verse gives you some information on making that journey. Let's read it together. And Abram journeyed going and traveling toward the south. <clears throat> so hopefully you see in the kind of italicized like Gee, that's kind of stupid and repetitive. Obviously, if you journeyed, you, you, you goad, right? And obviously, if you journeyed and you goad, you travel, right? I mean, what's up with that? Quite a bit. The Torah never race, wastes words. So each of those is representing something different in your life. And then the south is always important. Well, all four directions are always important. Knowing what the directions mean is important. All right, so let's break this verse down. In the Torah, in a first century Galilean worldview, the south is always associated with the concept in Hebrew known as chesed, C-H-E-S-E-D, chesed, which means God's loving kindness, God's favor, God's favorable disposition, God's covenant faithfulness, God's desire to extend only yeses to you, yes and amens, and just love you and bless you. It's uncontrolled, without boundaries of any size, shape, or form of love and kindness. That's going south in the Torah. Okay? Meaning that Abram, and eventually Abraham, was always traveling towards chesed. And he becomes intimately connected with chesed. You need to tuck that away because his son Isaac gets intimately connected to a different attribute of God. And Jacob, you have a triad then, and you're going to end up with a right pillar, a left pillar, and a central column that balances them. Abraham, or Abram right now, is right column. He's positive on the pole. And he's chesed. That's south. Isaac's going to be different, and he's going to have different direction. And Jacob is going to be different and have a different direction but they're all in the end going to form a balancing three-column system. So you're learning a first column here. You may not know what I'm talking about. Write it down because eventually you will, and it will help you tremendously. Just go with it. Just go with it, okay? Going south means heading in the way of chesed, and that becomes the attribute of God that becomes intimately connected with Abram from this point on. Everything Abram, Abraham does, including getting the hay, is connected to Chesed. Uh, when his name changed, everything he does from this point on is connected to Chesed. Okay? In Genesis 12, verse 9, it's important also to note there are three different words for moving, going, traveling, doing, you know, Lake Lakine, right? You have journeyed. You have going, you have traveling, right? And it's also important to understand that paradoxically, uh, they're, they're kind of giving this uh, understanding of a state of rest between the movements. This dynamic will be repeated in Scripture over and over again as well. You're starting, you're seeing the first a pattern. So if you haven't seen the pattern yet, I'm telling you the pattern's coming. This is the first of the patterns. Okay. Later, you'll see it in some places like when Israel is wandering in the desert for 40 years. They will come to a place and it will say that they journeyed there and then they 
camped there, and then they move. It has a pattern. It fits the same exact pattern, okay? And it will repeat in other places. The poetic phrasing alludes to the way in which all processes function in a dynamic ebb and flow. Um, starts and stops. Activity and rest. Taking the initiative and then passively receiving. These same dynamics form the basic structure of the biblical perspective as seen in things like the six days of work followed by the Sabbath. Six years of agricultural work followed by the Shemitah or the sabbatical year. The energetic ebb and flow uh, in this Hebraic thought is called run and return. Running and returning. Okay, It's one of the tools in your Hebraic toolbox in your Echoes of Eden handout. It's a phrase that's borrowed from Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 14. The dynamic pulsation of running and returning manifests itself in countless ways in creation. From the contraction and expansion at the very origins of the universe that quantum physics tells us about, to the beating of our hearts and the pulse of the blood running through our arteries and our veins, from the exhalation and the inhalation of breath to the highs and lows of human emotion, from the cycles of the four seasons to the ebb and flow of the tides, from the give and take that have to occur in relationships to the cycles of life and death mirrored by the pulsating rhythm of motion within every cell and atom. The journeys of Abraham and later the wandering of the people of Israel in the desert for 40 years, characterized by this alternating, alternating movement of run and return, of movement and rest, allude to a fundamental universal dynamic of run and return, exile and redemption. Why is all of this important? Because here is where the Torah portion is giving you spiritual technology to live by today. Because it's telling you, this is how life works. You're to Lake Laka, and whether you admit it or not, whether you realize it or not, and it's better if you do realize it and admit it and get on board with it, because either way, you're on a journey. You're on a journey. And you're going to a place that's going to be shown to you. And part of that journey is it's going to have run and return. It's going to have ebb and flow. It's going to be points where you need to be aggressive and assertive. It's going to have points where there you need to not be aggressive and assertive. You need to be passive and receiving. Just like you breathe. Right? You can't just keep breathing out. If you only breathe out, what happens? You pass out, right? Or you die, right? Or if you only breathe in, right? You have to breathe in and you have to breathe out. You have to go up. You have to go down. If you go down, you have to come up. If you go over, you got to come back. These patterns repeat throughout Scripture and in the lives of God's people. And they also happen in your life, which if you are aware of that and you become conscious of that and you begin to understand your own journey in life, then when there is a time of ebbing or there is a time of where things are being taken from you, you have a better chance of understanding this is not forever. This too will pass. This is part of breathing in. There will be a point where it will breathe out. There will be a point where I will receive again. There will be a point where I will go up again or I will come back down. And you can begin to find yourself in the journey, in the pattern, in the path, and therefore be in a better position to find where God is at and what God is up to and what God is showing you at that moment. We get all of this when we understand Abram and his journey wasn't just something he did back then, though it was, but it's an archetype for you and your journey in this world. So related to that, again, I want to go back to this verse. Right? Let's read it again. Now the Lord said to Abram, Lech lecha from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Right? It's about the departure. Lake Lakah begins with God's instructions to Abram. And he says, go forth from your land, from the land of your birthplace, the land of your country, your homeland. Again, all of those are fine translations. From your father's house uh, to the land I will show you. As I said earlier, aren't the details about the place that Abram will 
be leaving, isn't that a little overkill? Like, okay, you're going to leave your, your country, your homeland. Okay, well, that would sort of kind of imply you're going to leave your kindred, your family, which would kind of imply you're going to leave your father's house, right? So, again, we have this, why are you wasting my space? I got things to do, and why are you making me read so many words here? Because they're each different, and they speak to if you're going to mature in your faith, if you're going to grow spiritually, then you're going to need to do each of these destinations. You're going to need to do, you're being called to leave each of these in your own life, but not in the literal sense. I'm not telling you if you were born in Macomb, you, you best be, you know, moving on up to Arcadia or something like that. Or you are born in Michigan, you best be finding a place in, you know, Alabama. I'm not, it's archetypal, right? It's archetypal. So on an archetypal level, what are each of these things getting at? And so we have all these details in the front and then none on the back end. However, we would think the back end would be the bigger deal. Or wouldn't that be Abram's question? Well, where am I going? Sure, you want me to leave? Fine, just say leave. Where am I going? Wouldn't we want those details more than that front part? Yeah, of course we would. We want to know the end spot. Right? Which I'll get to that in a second. All right. But so let's look at these steps. Okay. They weren't just for Abram. They were. And he obeyed them literally on the physical plane. Absolutely. He he did go from the Ur of Kastim up to Canaan. Okay. But he did it on a spiritual level too. And it's that's the archetype. So these three hints or steps in Abram, let's break it down. So go forth from your land, okay? Land represents nature. So this first command means to abandon our natural preferences, right? Again, it's about getting out of the box, right? What are our natural preferences? If we're going to grow spiritually, we first need to understand what they are. Just like Abraham, Abram, might not have even known what they are. You might not know what they are if you don't ever think about them. What are your natural preferences? Just, just start there. Become self-aware of what those are. And then begin to think about, well, how might I leave some of those behind? So leave your land. Then leave, lake your kindred, or your birthplace. This is your environment that shapes your habits and your lifestyles. The second step demands that you transcend the trends and influences of your immediate surroundings. He's the spitting image of his father, someone might say, right? Or since you've been hanging out with them almost 24-7, you're a different person. That can be good or bad, but right? It's talking about that. Again, it begins as you read it this week, your first time maybe reading through it. Then you have the kavana, the connection, the 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 right frame of mind to be like, okay, well, this this time around in Lake Laka, I'll worry about next year going deeper. I just want to become self-aware. I don't that's enough action. What in a self-aware way? What are the trends and influences from your surrounding, both your immediate like family, how you were brought up, right? Well, that's, that's stupid to have potatoes with turkey on Thanksgiving. Everybody knows you have noodles, right? right? What do you assume is absolutely normal? What behavior do you have that you aren't even conscious of why you have it? Right? We all have that. This year, make it the goal this week and live. Just become aware of it. Don't, you can worry about working on it or leaving it another year. Then you have your father's house. This alludes to things like your education, provided by the parents who raised you, especially are those that raised you. This command tells you that in order to reach that inner promised land, that, that land, the spiritual state known as Israel, your devotion to God must supersede your academic sophistication, and your intellectual achievement. 
and then it's all to the land that I will show you. Now, now here's the important thing. To a person who devotes himself or herself unconditionally to God, surrendering their personal preferences and calculations and biases, the actual specific destination is completely irrelevant. His or her readiness to fulfill whatever God wills is always the same, regardless of the particulars. And so, it's never about the destination. It's always about the departure. Now, this is where I think we can even see in our culture, who's so obsessed with the destination, we can even see in a very practical way. We beat down our kids' throats that they better have as one of their destinations a college degree. I don't care what it's in. You get that piece of paper all about the destination. And then we wonder why they're so unfulfilled, they're so unhappy, and even when they get that glorious destination for a hundred grand, mom and dad, they don't feel any better as a human being and you really don't feel any different about it. They have some pride, but like in the end, they're not happy and they're still as clueless as they ever were. Why? Because they made it about the destination and they never thought about the departure. It is not about the destination. Oh, that's so counter-Western culture. So counter-Western culture. It's about the departure. It's about how you launch. Not where you land. It doesn't matter where you land. God lands you. That's why that's so ambiguous at the end. God says, I'll show you. God's got the landing. God's got the destination. But he wants us prepared for the departure. And we often don't prepare our kids for their departure. We just tell them where we want them to end up. Now, that's one example. But as you're reading through it this week, again, as you're reading that story, that's really what you're reading about. That's the archetype underneath the story. And now you know why these stories last and have lasted for thousands of years and will last another thousand years and will speak into every culture and every language of every time and every generation because the archetypes are always true. That's why this is your story, not Abram's story. We can read it that way. Then the Word of God can change our lives. And then those words of God become living and active and God speaks to us through them. And then things are revealed to us through them. And then the Holy Spirit does its job. All right, we got time for one more. Walking through the garden, right? So in your Hebraic toolbox, number one, for a specific reason, law first. It's the most important rule in your rule book. It's called pardes. It's an acronym in Hebrew for those four words. And yes, those are the four symbols, not of the Gospels and the Gospel writers, but from Ezekiel, which is where the Gospel symbols come from. Know the original source of these things. But it's an acronym in Hebrew for the Hebrew words Peshat, that's the P of Pardes, the Remez or Remez, that's the R of Pardes, Drash, that's the D of Pardes. And Sod, that's the S of Pardes. Pardes is a Hebrew word that means a garden or an orchard or even paradise. And you can almost see the English paradise in Pardes. If you just kind of messed around with the vowels a little bit. That's literally where paradise comes from, folks. All right. So it means a paradise. First century Galilean world. Little Jesus going to little 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 Sabbath school as a six-year-old, parents dropping him off. This is what he's learning, right? In a Lutheran world, you might hear law gospel, word sacrament, like you've got buzzwords, right? This is the buzzwords for first century Galilean coming up in the world. Apostles. This is this is how they 
were taught to interpret the Bible. It is how they interpreted the Bible. And it's how they wrote the New Testament with this system. It's the onion. These are the four layers of the onion. And I want to, so the best way, instead of giving you all the theory of it, is I want to just walk through a verse in this week's portion where we kind of look at each layer. Each layer, they're all true at the same time. Not, one's not more important than the other. One doesn't replace the other. One doesn't contradict the other. If you think it's contradicting, that just means you've got to have work harder to find how they have a synthesis. Uh, but they all work together, and they all reveal a more fuller picture of the text at hand. And you literally don't just do this with every verse. You do this with every word. <laughs> all right. So, uh, you know, that's why often uh, in morning devotions, I can spend a day, <laughs> you know, I can get on a word because that's what I'm, I'm, I'm peeling the onion. All right. Um, we won't do that this evening, though. All right. But we'll do a quicker version of it. So to show you what Pardes is, and then every week uh, as we go through our Torah lessons together, uh, at times I will make reference to Peshat, or that's a remez, that's a hint, uh, that's a dirash, or that's a sod. Just get comfortable hearing it, hearing the examples, and just letting it come to you as it comes to you. If it takes you two years to figure it out, let it take two years to figure it out. That's okay. It's not about the destination, right? about the departure just enjoy you're hearing something that you haven't heard before so Peshat means literal plain simple if it says that's a white car you can be assured it's not a blue truck it's a white car means what it says says what it means grammatical historical simple meaning and you kind of got to know that or nothing going to make sense. It's very important. So simple or literal don't think means low or not important. If you don't know that, you don't know nothing. All right? Remis literally means hint. So if I'm reading Proverbs and it tells me, don't have unbalanced scales or whatever, I'm like, I don't have any scales. And I run a business, but we don't weigh things on scales. It's hinting at something bigger than telling you get some scales that are good. It's telling you to run a fair business practice, right? It's hinting at something beyond the text. It's very simple. The hints get bigger and deeper and start using numbers and words spelt backwards and all kinds of cool stuff. But it means hint. Drash means homiletic, sermon, parable, right? Teaching. Uh, it's where uh, a pastor maybe takes two words from a verse and preaches 45 minutes on it, right? That's a darash, right? Uh, I'm reading the book of Psalms from where does my help come from? My help comes from when I look up to the hills, and then I go on, my help comes when I look to the hill of Golgotha. Coward. But that has nothing to do with the text. I've used a darash. I've used a, a phrase in that verse to get you somewhere else, and they aren't related. That's a darash. Historicity has nothing to do with Darash. It's what's a moral point? What's an ethical point? What's a sermonic take-home point from this text? That's Darash. So, secret, really means esoteric, means deep, mystical. How many Gospels do we have? Oh, wow, just Kawinkadinky, four of them. Mark, Luke, Matthew, John. When you now think about it, you'll go, of course. Of course John is so... John says all kinds of crazy things, right? And if you interpret it literally, word became flesh, what this got legs and walked, right? That's so... You know, you know something going on. Drash, parables. While they can be found in all four, it's really Matthew. Matthew has the parables. Matthew has the teachings. Matthew has the Sermon on the Mount. The longest discourse of Jesus that we have recorded. Three full chapters of nonstop Jesus. That's Drash. He's taking a piece of the Torah and he's going on for miles with it. Peshat, Mark. Mark's short. Mark gets to the. Mark didn't even bother to tell you Jesus is born. He's just like, hey, basically begins. There's this dude, 30 years old. Jesus gets baptized and bam, before you know it, he's getting crucified, dead, and in a tomb. 
And in the most ancient forms of Mark, he ain't even resurrected. Because they saw the tomb, it was empty. They said nothing to nobody. They never proclaimed it in Mark's gospel, right? Remus, Luke is the same thing as Mark, but somehow twice as long. Hmm. It's because Luke starts expanding the hints, right? So that's Peshat. So in this week's portion, we have a beautiful example, uh, I think, of how all we can kind of see all four levels in one verse, and then uh, I'll quickly kind of go through them so you can kind of see part A's and flesh. So the verse is Genesis 15:5, And he took him, Abraham, outside and said, Look now towards the heavens and count the stars if you were able to count them. And he said to him, God said to Abraham, so will be your offspring. Right? Simple enough verse, right? Oh, but let's have some fun with it, shall we? Okay. First explanation, the Peshat. Okay. That's quite literally means what it says. Abraham's inside a tent or inside some kind of house. What did God do? Hey, can you come outside with me for a second? Right? And there, God does what? Hey, why don't you look above you? Can you count those stars? The obvious answer is, of course I can't. And God's like, well, that's how many descendants you're going to have. That's how many are going to come from you, right? It's very literal. Very easy to understand. That's Peshat. But it's very also very important. And we'll eventually see how they connect. Because sometimes the Peshat is the deepest of them all. Okay, believe it or not. So, Peshat means what it means, right? You guys got that. What's going on at the Remez level? Here, we are to understand the words, he took him outside, as a hint to something. So, we understand it figuratively. God instructs Abraham, and this fits in with the theme of Lake Lecha, right? That's why it was so important that I spent 45 minutes on Lake Lecha. Because that's the whole point of the whole portion in every word. That informs how we read everything. God instructs Abraham to leave behind his preconceived notions, to go outside, not literally outside the doors, but to go outside of the framework of his own predictions or assumptions that he was not destined to have any children. God, by literally taking Abraham outside his tent, Hence that God needs him to think outside the box, as it were. That Abraham must reevaluate his true potential and not be stymied by what he or anyone else has forecasted for him with regard to whether he'll have any children or not. So he needs to go. God says, I need you to go outside. I know it looks like people your age don't have babies and women your wife's age don't have babies, much less are they gonna, you going to have like a quiver full and, and all these generations? I need you to go outside of that thinking. You've got to think bigger than that. Right? That's the remnants. The Darash. This line of thought continues on an even more subtle, allegorical, homiletical level by explaining that God told Abraham that indeed, Abram and Sarai, their names at this point in the narrative, that they could not have children. But guess what? Abram and Sarai can't, but Abraham and Sarah can. Why? Because in Hebrew, names are never just names. It's one of your tools. It's one of your early tools. Names are never just names. Names are your destiny. Names are your essence. Names are your core. Names are who you really are. Peter the Rock. Thomas the Twin. Right? It's who you are. It's also the judgments and what has been determined and destined for you. So, hey, Abram and Sarai can't have it. Fine. They're dead. They're gone. I'm giving you the hey. I'm giving you the letter hey giving you life. Abraham and Sarah, they can have kids. Right? God would change their mazel. You ever heard mazel tov? Ever heard that? Maybe in a movie, like at a wedding. Mazel tov. 
That's mazel. Mazel is what your name means for you. It means what is in your future. Mazel tov means like good future, good blessings, good bestowal from heaven above. Changing a name changes a mazel. Both physical and spiritual factors that had prevented them from having children would now be overcome. Why did God have to take Abraham outside to tell him about the name change and how this would alter his destiny? Was this merely to dramatize this point, or was there something more? As I said, when someone's name is changed in the Torah, it indicates that he or she has undergone a qualitative transformation and transcendence, which again is one of the major themes of this week's portion. It's transcending. It's transformation. Name change. Transformation is not merely a gift from God. It comes from within the person. Lacha. God alludes to this when he tells Abraham to step outside the tent, step outside of his current self-definition and his preconceived notions, and informs him that this process has the power to offer a seemingly unchangeable destiny. And then the sod is concluded by looking at this deeper level of textual understanding. In this approach, God took Abraham outside the earth's atmosphere. And before you think that's so crazy, we won't have time tonight, but I will quickly show you. Jesus believes this, what I'm about to tell you. And Jesus tells us he believes this in John chapter 8. So when I tell you this Jewish story, know it's a story Jesus heard. And it's a story Jesus believed. And it's a story that Jesus taught. And it's a story that John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, decided to write down in his gospel, which therefore for us would mean this story is true. God took Abraham outside of everything. Outside of space and time. And gave Abraham a vision where Abraham was able to see all the stars, if you will, meaning his descendants, right? We even know that from the Peshat. Look at the stars. Can you count them? We knew even in the Peshat, stars meant kids, descendants, generations to follow. God in a vision showed Abraham every descendant that would ever come from him. Because he took him outside of space and now, lest you think that's a crazy story. Look at John chapter 8. Your father Abraham, Jesus said, rejoiced that he would see my day. Where in your Bible does it say that? It doesn't say that. But Jesus says, your father Abraham, when he's speaking to the Jewish leaders there, said he would rejoice when he see my day. He saw it. And he was glad. Where in your Bible does it say Abraham saw the day of Jesus, the day of Messiah, and was excited about it? It doesn't. But that story I just told you does. Because that story goes on. It's in the Midrash, by the way. The Midrash Rabbah. Goes on to say, Abraham saw all of his descendants and then he began to rejoice with great exclamation when he saw the Messiah come from him. So not only did Jesus know that story, those people, those Jewish leaders that he was talking to knew that story, and he's referring to it authoritatively. And now it's recorded for you in your Gospels that were authoritatively inspired, were they not? And then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. You'll have to come back next year to finish that off, because that was our last section, was to look at that. But We were going to look at Yahut Shimoni, my favorite, mid my favorite book of Jewish stories. It's not available in English yet, unfortunately. I've been trying to convince my friend in Jerusalem to translate it. But it has, oh my goodness, it's John 8, 56 and 50. It's so, it's so rock on all of that. Like, it's amazing. 
So please come back next year at Lake Lata, all right? Uh, but I did want to give you a little bit of insight into that John 8, verse 56, so that it would help us understand there is legitimacy to the push, I mean, the sowed understanding of that Genesis verse, that God took Abraham outside, outside of everything, outside of it all. Because Jesus says that. And Abraham got to see my day thousands of years before it was. And when he saw my day, he was glad. And Jesus' opponents knew exactly what he was talking about. All right, we will close there. Thank you for coming out on this uh, spooky, sloppy, wet evening uh, to Emmanuel and for Echoes of Eden in our third portion, Lake Laka. I hope I've given you food for thought as you go and dive into this portion for the rest of this week. That gives you something to pray about, think about, manifest in your life. Uh, trusting that these words of God will speak these truths to you in these stories. True though they may be, archetypal though they are also. All right, let's close with the Lord's blessing. Blessed are you, Lord, who has given to us the gift of the Torah. Amen. Shalom, shalom. Have a great week. God bless.